Greetings, fellow garment gazers, and uh, welcome to this week's episode. Now, this one has been a long time in the works, a long time planning, a long time hoping, really, talking about 18 months in all, but uh, finally it happened and I'm pretty chuffed about it. At times, you will notice the sound gets a bit sketchy. This is due to uh, Nigel getting a bit excited and uh, showing me books and leaving them piled on his laptop, etc. So the sound gets a bit sketchy, gets a bit better, gets a bit worse, gets a bit better and ends up pretty good. So um, we're talking uh, kind of a uh, rough ride, but worth a listen as um, we get a pretty candid chat with uh, Nigel about uh, his life, his business, his designs and whatever. So... uh, Enjoy the ride. <laughs> let's get started. Okay, let's go. Fire away. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. And today we are back in England, the north of England, speaking to, uh, well, I guess the uh, big son of uh, Newcastle. Welcome, Nigel. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, yeah, great. Great to meet you. You know, I've heard a lot about you, so that's great. And you've just told me you've got 20k born pieces, so really excited about that. Especially, as you know, you've got mainly outerwear, which is really my my sort of love. And I'm Nigel k by the way. I started in the uh, late 60s. I'm 74, coming up 74. I've been in the business 50 years. I do exactly what I love. I think that's obvious. And I spent really all my adult life with Nigel Cabon brand. I'm kind of curious, a young Geordie boy in the late 60s and you chose to study fashion. How did that come about? Well, it's pretty simple it's a very straightforward thing you know i'm a man and um and obviously when i went being a young man in the 60s the 60s was the swinging 60s it was an amazing time i went to newcastle fashion college i met you know there was something like four guys and 200 girls and i thought fucking hell this is great can you imagine i mean i needed those sort of odds uh, <laughs> Oh, it was a great time. The 60s was a very wonderful time. It was, you know, it was all about freedom and and loving the time. And the pop music was amazing. We had the Vietnam War, which really, you know, it's nothing to celebrate. but But I was always a bit of a military guy. And I used to knit myself. In, in in the late 60s, when I was approaching 19, in, uh, two, in uh, 1969, I thought, you know, you could be a Vietnam soldier if you'd been American. And, uh, and my father had sort of drilled into me about Errol Flynn. He loved Errol Flynn. And I, he told me about Errol Flynn's son, who stayed with me most of my life because he was a war photographer with Tim Page in Vietnam, and I knew all about it when I was a young man, because I went to see a film of Sean Flynn in 1962, and Son of Captain Blood, what his father had made in 1937. And, uh, you know, so I was very much part of the 60s, part of the music, part of that war, 
part of the flower power and I loved Klaus um, from being about 15 or 16 so it's been in my blood you know all my adult life and so you know could have better than that you know if you, if you go through the Vietnam War through English and pop music and flower power I think you've got a good chance of being a well-known designer so there I am so you were studying fashion with these influences straight away from 1967 and how did your life and career move onwards from there well, it never looked back because I was doing exactly what I wanted um, and I was doing menswear. Uh, when, I, when I first started with the, uh, with the, fashion, with the fashion school, I had to um, do women's wear and I wasn't interested in women's wear. The fashion college was more about women's wear. So I said, no, I want to do men's. So they made an exception. I was the only student doing menswear in the 60s. And, uh, and I had a lecturer who loved menswear, a guy. And so he got behind me. And I had a lovely lady who taught me how to sew, who was in, was in the fashion school as well. And she helped me to make things. So how I started, started designing and making things and, uh, and and that was key to understanding things and then the pop music was so relevant to me american and british pop music i mean the mods and the small faces for instance you know i mean it was just like a paradise to have all that around me because i was very driven by music so my first influences were music, not vintage. Vintage came a bit later, but I had this background of Vietnam because of my father's introduction of Sean Flynn, Errol Flynn's son, who was a Vietnam famous photographer, and he disappeared in 1970. So it was always like a bit of a mystery to me. So I always had the interest at the back of it all with the military mixed with the pop music you know and it's a nice mix now i imagine when you started out it was fashion you were designing so i've got a picture on the wall i'm just going to show you okay this is my drawings about 69 this tells you exactly what i was about at fashion college can you see it I can see it. So what does that fucking tell you? That tells me fashion of the it, time. What it tells you is loon pants, okay? Yep. And it also tells you... Who's this? I can't tell. Well, it's Adam Faith and the Roulettes. And Adam Faith was famous for a television programme in 1970 called Budgie. And this is a budgie jacket, and this is a jacket I called the regular, which is crude canvas and suede. And I used to cut the suede myself. So I started making my own stuff in the late 60s and selling it to all my, all the students and usually the older students. And basically I had my own little cupboard full of suede because I used to love suede and I used to love 
the 60s clothing. So these are based on the current pop stars of the 60s. I imitated that. That's where I grew from. You'll notice I've got fucking Converse shoes on here. Uh, I was wearing Converse 501 Levi's and my own stuff, my own tops. And, and that's really how I started. Okay. So did you start your own brand straight away or were you working for someone else? I was, uh, in 1967, I got, I got sort of into the swing of things and by 68, I was making my own stuff. 69 making more and in 69 I'm thinking, fucking hell, I've got a lot of learning difficulties. I'm totally dyslexic, so, so but I didn't realise I was dyslexic. I just thought it was a bit stupid because in those days, if you weren't you weren't so clever academically you were considered considered a bit stupid so i thought well no fucker's going to give me a job and i thought well i better start my own business i think i started my own business in 69 70 more out of fear because i thought who's going to give you a job you know and so that's how i started i started full blown and then i, I was fortunate enough to meet couple of people along the way and Paul came to the first Paris SEM with me we did SEM together he knew less than me but he knew customers and to be very fair he had his own store so I was able to supply the first store out of the northeast was Paul Smith's store in Nottingham and, uh, and we we stayed friends all through the 70s until he became a designer in 1969 and we're still good friends today um, and he he turned me on to vintage 1978-79 when we were showing in Paris together he was with his wife in Paris and I was on my stand absolutely having it off he was just starting I was having it off and he come over to me one day and he showed me this jacket. He says, Nigel, look at this jacket. It's, and it was a, an REF 1950s, straight after the war, parachute jacket with parachute buttons. He says, look at this, Nigel. You should be doing stuff like that. I thought, you're fucking right. And I started to make outerwear right from the beginning. In, you know, um, but... It was crude outerwear. I only became an outerwear expert later in the 70s when I really got to know how to do it, you know. So he turned me on to vintage. Vintage turned me on to outerwear. And then I fucking put it all into practice. So 1979, 1980, 81, 82, I had a phenomenal business. My business just mushroomed. It went from... Hundred thousand to a million pounds or something obscene, and it was all based on outerwear. And that's when you started collecting vintage as well. Seventy-eight, through him, he turned me on to it. But of course, then I couldn't get enough of it. It was like a drug, it's still a drug, really, but it's more controlled because I got to a stage where I have been. In good days, I've been spending maybe fifty, eighty thousand a year. On bad days now where business is a lot tougher, I might still be spending 20000 a year. And, of course, I travel the world. It's like a bit of a buzz for me. And, of course, I know all the vintage people around the world. 
and uh, and it's a great it's a great hobby but it's a hobby of i have four thousand vintage beautiful vintage pieces all the best okay i don't have crap i have just really good pieces and in what way do you, do you use them now? Or are they just for collecting? Oh, no. I'm not a collector, really. They're total inspiration. So, what I realised is I had a pretty bad memory when I was young. I was definitely dyslexic. Definitely had learning difficulties. So when I started to design, I realised this through the 70s, but until I discovered vintage, this is when it really took off for me. So I was influenced from 1971 to about 78, basically on pop music, doing pop clothes, more fashion. Then in 1978, when Paul introduced me to vintage, I started thinking, fucking hell, I've got a reference for what I want to do. And, and because I haven't got a good memory, I'll buy that jacket to take that detail. I'll buy this jacket to take this detail detail so basically i was a kid in the 50s and you have a potato man and in the, with that potato you get a little box with eyes ears noses um uh, all the things of a face and i designed like a potato man so i might take six vintage pieces to give me one great idea but because my memory wasn't that great i used to buy the pieces didn't i and uh, that's how I built the business. And that's how I've got 4,000 pieces. Totally for totally reference design. And you can see my beautiful library, can't you? Yeah. I've got, I've got four or 5,000 fucking books. And all of these books are all my pleasure and interest and give me all the ideas. So it's, it's World War One, it's World War Two, it's Vietnam. It's the fucking Korean War. You know, it's about me dad in Burma as well. You know, it's about my mum being a nurse in the war. You know, it's um, it's about sports, it's about ping pong, it's about tennis. It's about photographers, Robert Kaffer, Gerdy Taro, Lee Miller. You know, it's about fucking mountains, which I love. So a huge section on, on George Mallory, Edmund Hillary, for fuck's sake, and and the last Scots expedition. It's just all inspiration. And all the clothes are inspiration. I must be the most lucky man in the world. If I was a pop singer, I'd be a million, multi-millionaire, wouldn't I? Build a rock all that. <laughs> but the problem, the problem with clothes is they always cost so much money. And they're always, it's oh, such a hard business to develop all your own clothes. It's always been a tough old business, but I always have tremendous en energy. So I've got lots of energy, very positive, love what I do. And uh, and I suppose that's that's my secret, isn't it? So when you, I can, I can tell from your Instagram that you're still out most days looking for vintage with a oh, enthusiasm that is baffling. I get a great buzz out of meeting people, okay? I had great pleasure and, 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 and I love young people it's important to me to have young friends because they inspire me so I'm very fortunate that I've got you know quite a, quite a lot of really smashing young people who inspire me 
and who help help to you know I'm fortunate that, that a lot of these people are on the start of the ladder and I what I believe in is is to be honest it might sound a bit corny but this is what I believe in uh, this is what I believe in and I also believe that what you give out what you get back so the more you give out the more you get uh, and this karma book keeps me normal I haven't always had good karma I've been a bit of a lunatic in the past but I try to uh, I try to stand by this now and I try to be as kind as I can I had a beautiful mother and father uh, my father was in Burma in World War Two, so he's a huge inspiration to me I've had a wonderful mother who lived until she was 92 so I have great parents who uh, gave a lot of love to me and I try to pass that out okay as best I can okay and that's what comes I hope through the whole the Instagram I think the Instagram is actually just built on somebody who looks fucking happy and I think that's the main key to the success of the Instagram is is the smile and the honesty and, and what I give out. Not only happy, but also fit, because you've been on a very, with your medicine balls and your fitness thing the past years. You've got to understand that uh, I've had stages in my life where I've been as fat as a pig, okay? So so I would say I, I, got, I got, when I got married, in, when I was about 32, uh, I got fat and so by the time I was 40 I was fat I thought Nigel you've got to get yourself sorted out so uh, I sorted myself out and got back thin again when I got to early 50s I was fat again very fat and, and by late 50s I was 16 and a half stone okay I'm now 11 stone so I said to myself when I was approaching nearer 60, I thought, you've got to get yourself sorted out, Nigel. So most people get fat at 60 and they get fatter. Well, I do. I got fat at 60 and got thinner. And uh, so I reversed it. And I, and I, I met a, a wonderful uh, guy. Well, I say wonderful. He was, a, he, was a, he was a villain, but a very nice villain. He was a proper boxer. He was as strong as an oxy. He could fight six people at once, but he taught me medicine balls. And he, he believed in training the old style. And of course, that's the Muhammad Ali way with the Everlast balls. And, and he sold me three balls, which were about 30, 40 years old, leather case balls, 3K, 5K and 7K. And I got fit like an old soldier you know and I did it every day or six days a week with these fucking medicine balls and then I started to take up tennis I got my own table tennis table so I was doing ping pong and I was doing cross training and then I started to eat well kept off alcohol and never smoked anyway you know, I used to have binges with alcohol, of course. And so, I, you know, I had to sort of address that as well. And I, and that's how I got super fit. I had to fucking work hard. Ten years of hard work. And it's this hard work when, you, when you're 74 next. 
it's still very hard work. It doesn't come easy. Yeah. Was this when you also started the army gym? Yes. The army gym was a bit inspired on my lifestyle. Um, so started the army gym about 2015. That was strictly for the clothes that I wanted to wear to train in. Okay? So I made all of that stuff in Portugal because I couldn't get anything made in England, not Jersey wear. And uh, that inspired me more. And um, and that really helped me to do the army gym. It was definitely, uh, you know, I'm pleased you reminded me about that because sometimes I forget that that was quite an inspiration for me. Um, and of course, uh, some of the collaborations I've done have been based, I mean, when I got that collaboration with Fred Perry, it was amazing. Because when Fred Perry came to me about six or seven years ago and said, we want to do a collaboration with you. And I said, yeah. And he said, we want to do, you know, you're the best at outwear. We want some good outwear. I said, I'm not interested in outwear. I said, do you want to do a collaboration with me? You've got to do ping pong. And they said, why? I said, because Fred Perry was world champion in 1929. He's the best player in the world at ping pong. And he only became a tennis star in the mid-30s. So they said, okay. So I did a ping pong collaboration. I did a tennis collaboration, and then I did him as a sports trainer, which he was. And I got more my pleasure out of that. Those three collaborations helped me as well on exercise, okay? And, and of course, uh, the, the, uh, and I, I'll be very honest with you, and I, I'm not ashamed of it because it happened before the war. But my favourite, I always wanted to be an international goalkeeper. So I was born in Scunthorpe and I wanted to play for Scunthorpe United. So when I was a kid, I saw Lev Yashin, who was, a, who was the goalkeeper for, United, for USSR. And, um, and he used to wear all black. He was called the Black Spider. He had a big number one on his back. And I thought, I want to be a goalkeeper. What I was, that's what I was good at. At school, I want to be a goalkeeper, and and even even doing the collaboration on him. This is nearly three years ago, before the war. Uh, it was a childhood, um, you know. When you can do a collaboration on your heroes, it's pretty fantastic. Because I love football. I love fifties football. I love Levy Ashin. I love Ferenc Puskas. I loved Alfredo Di Stefano, I loved Pelle, I loved the World Cup, I know all about the World Cup from when it started in 1930. You know, obviously I know a lot more about from 50, 54, 58, 62, you know, and all that period. So sport is a huge driver. Always has been, and soccer's been the driver. Combination with soccer and table tennis are probably my two most favorite. Uh, um, things. So I had a built-in sports, um, you know, sort of built in there, really. And I think that the history thing sort of came out of, of that because when I started to read about Fred Payne, sorry. Yeah. So I started, so I started with sport and, and of course then I learned about Edmund Hillary and I learned about George Mallory and 
And all these people have inspired my business. You know? I was about to say that with the army gym, you were making things in cotton, natural fibers. So in, in some sense, you were so far behind the curve that you ended up before the curve again, because now we're talking about natural fibers again. Yeah, it was all cotton. Never, never that bloody horrible polyester rubbish. And it was all based really around 1950s, 60s sportswear. And of course, of course, I was so privileged to also get recently, in the last five years, I got the Umbro collaboration with Umbro. I was able to do collection based on the 1966 World Cup as well. So these collaborations have come to me, starting off, you know, starting off with Fred Perry, table tennis and tennis, you know, a fucking Moscow Dynamo for the goalkeeper. And then, of course, you know, you've got the, the, um, what else have I got? I've got so many fucking things. I've done 35 collaborations, for God's sake, you know, um, and, you know, and I've met, you know, I didn't meet George Mallory, but I more or less just about met fucking Edmund Hillary when I went to, uh, when I went to New Zealand, he was still alive and, my wife says you've got to go and meet him. And can you believe he fucking died while I was there? Oh. It's a bit of a tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you mentioned you couldn't make the army gym stuff in the UK, but making in England has always been important for you, hasn't it? Oh, number one. I'm a British guy making British clothes, but you have to be practical. Today, today it's, it's terrible. You've got to understand that the British factories generally are supported by fantastic people from Poland, from China, from all over the world. And, and of course, we've had so many problems in England, so much recession, a lot of those people have gone home, gone back home. And so it's left, it's even, it's more worse now than it's ever been. Um, but England's been on the decline for a long time. But I had three or four super people had Macintosh, who are a wonderful company, made all my famous outerwear. Had PhD in Sheffield, which were the only people in the whole of Great Britain that could make a real down jacket, putting in the down by hand. Had the finest knitwear with Esk Valley in Scotland. And so, uh, and then I had Cookson and Clegg, who made the cold weather parker in World War II, made all the military stuff from World War II period. So I had four good people and I worked so close with them and they were the backbone of my success from probably the start of my outerwear routes, you know? Uh, probably the last 20 years from 2003 or before, they were the backbone of the Nigel K. Bond business, okay? 2003? was kind yeah. of a, an important year, wasn't it? That was... Most important me, because it was, the, it was the start of the Everest Parker, and it was the start of the 12 most important pieces I've ever done in my life, which was based on the Ascent of Everest, with that beautiful book. And I've got the Ascent of Everest, and I've got the crossing of Antarctica, because two key people on Everest and Antarctica 
were doing the two same expeditions. So George Lowe and Edward Hillary became my two famous icons. And George Mallory with Sandy Irvin is my favourite uh, icons from the 20s, as I actually believe that George Mallory got there first. So I've got this obsession with, uh, with Everest and Antarctica, okay? Uh, I've got an obsession with the with the tractor that fucking went across Antarctica with uh, Edmund Hillary. I love, and it just, you know, this history thing of mine, and my dad with the, you know, wearing the fucking Bombay bloomers, although my dad would have never worn Bombay bloomers. Maybe they would have been khaki, but you know, I'm very inspired by my dad in Burma, okay? And, uh, because I love fucking, you know, jungle stuff. Uh, I love mountains. I love Antarctica. I love all the sports. <laughs> yeah, my. You mentioned Oops. that you still think that Mallory reached the peak of Everest first, because that is still being discussed, isn't it? Still being discussed. But what happened is he fell from the top, I believe. That's my feeling. Um, I don't know what you think. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Yeah. I just lost, lost your picture. Um, can you, can you, is it, is that, oh, good. Oh, yeah. So, I believe he got there. Uh, it's pretty happy. I was fucking leaving me when I'm, I'm on, the, uh, on, the, on the phone. Anyway, George Mallory, I believe, got to the top. It was found about 800 feet from the top. He was found in a frozen state. I think there was a good chance he got there first and fell, and fell from a certain place. A lot of people believe it. I believe it. And, uh, and maybe, maybe Edmund Hillary believed it. But I never got a chance to ask Edmund Hillary, actually. But I did meet George Lowe, personally, who was part of the expedition in '53, And I also met... I met Band, who was the youngest member, and I met Mike Westmacott. Because in 2003, the Reggae Centre in the Lake District did a whole exhibition on the 2003 exhibition. But at that time, I didn't properly think about George Mallory getting there. And I'll bet there'd be somewhere, somebody in the world, the trouble is they're all dead now. I can't ask them. They still haven't found the camera, though. <laughs> you know, I'm approaching death as well, so... You know, how long have I got? <laughs> yeah. What was uh, remarkable, though, with Mallory was that they were actually climbing Everest in Tweed. Harris Tweed. Harris Tweed. And that's why I did Harris Tweed. So you've got to understand that when I did the collection in 2003, it was actually based, actually really based on Mallory. So in effect, um, you know, Mallory was, was sort of in the backdrop, but I didn't know hardly anything about him then. It was later. But it was in the backdrop. I used and and of course Tenzing had a wonderful picture of Tenzing and he was wearing like a tweed jacket with elbow patches and el and shoulders in a book. I thought gotta do Harris Tweed because it's British. And this this I couldn't tell what it was because it was a black and white. But I thought that's that's me. That's me, the jacket. And I called it, you know, the first jacket's I did were called Mallory and Tensing. Yeah. 
completely confused the book. That that the little book I did was confused between Mallory, it was confused about Everest, and it was confused about Antarctica. It was all about the things that are lives. And I called it the ascent of Everest after the book of Hillary getting to the top of Everest with Tenzi. So I just mis- mixed everything up. Nobody ever asked me uh, why I'd done this and that. Nobody ever came to me and said, well, some of these styles that you're doing are actually based on the crossing of Antarctica, 56 to 58. But nobody ever asked me. The Everest, the Everest Parker, I call it, actually is the Parker he wore crossing Antarctica on the Ferguson tractor. It's not the one that went up to the top of Everest. The one that went up to the top of Everest was a smock. You know, so there you go. But the things you were making then were—I mean, they were quite different to what everyone else was making. Well, it was very authentic, too authentic, and nobody really understood it until I did the exhibition in Tokyo, and I built the tents, made the tent, made the sleeping bags, made the tent and the sleeping bags all out of ventile. And, and I made clothes out of Ventile. I'll show you the original. This is 2003. Um, I'll have to go and get it. It's in the other room. I'll show you the first Everest park I ever made. This is the one that Ben Fogel climbed to Everest. Um, this is the... Um, 2003, this is the, can you see it okay? Yeah. And it's pretty filthy. And it's nice to know that it's all faded with the sun. Okay? Yeah. That's pure ventile. And this is made on the back of the jacket that went across Antarctica on 56 to 58. And I was lucky enough to go to Australia in 2002. And I, I was invited by the people that make the zips, rear zips in Switzerland, invited four well-known designers to go to Australia uh, um, for the America's Cup, which I wasn't interested in, but it turned out to be very <laughs> inspiring as well. When I got off the aeroplane, said to my wife, you know, I'm sorry, I'm off. She says, where are you going? I said, well, the first thing I'm doing, I'm going to see the exhibition because uh, we went to Auckland, they had an exhibition in 2003 on Edmund Hillary. So I've gone out fucking exhibition. So I'm not interested in the Americans. She says, You come all the way, they pay for you. Must have cost them 20 grand. We came, went business class. And now I've got to go to the exhibition. I went to the exhibition, met somebody in the aisles, because I, I meet people every minute of the day. And uh, I met this guy, and he said to me, uh, We were talking about it. I told him why he'd come. He says, well, you know the Antarctic Parker? He says, it's in Christchurch. It was made by Fairy Down. Because, you see, when I went to the exhibition, then you've got all the buffs, 
all the scientist types who know everything. Yeah. Uh, 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 told me this fucking bargain. It's in Christchurch, and it's in and it's in the Fairy Down factory originally made it, and it's in the cabinet as you go into the door. So I said to my wife, "I'm off to Christchurch." She said, "You crackers!" I jumped on a plane the next day. Off I went to Christchurch, and I found the jacket in in the blink in a cabinet in the front of Fairy Down who made the original jackets, and I photographed it all. Then I come back. And that was the start of making 2003 limited edition. And everybody thinks that barge is the one that went up the top of Everest. It's the one that went from north to south between Edmund Foops and Edmund Hillary in the Met in the middle. And he was. Nobody ever queried it, but I, I probably told probably about a thousand white lies on it. But anyway, nobody, nobody queried me on it. But it was really. And this is the Antarctic one. So this is based on it's a new Everest Parker. This is called the Antarctic one. And it's got a little picture of the tractor on and everything. This is officially this is officially the Antarctic Parker it's called today. And this one is called the Everest Parker. They're very similar. The Antarctic one's very long, okay? And a belt round it. The Everest one <coughs> is the Everest, which I'm sure you've... Have you seen them both? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, they are a bit different. And the Antarctic one's made out of L28 Ventile, which is what they make the tents out of. And the one in 2003 is made out of the L34. And that's pretty near to the fabric in 1953 although in 1953 I found out by going to Christchurch that the actual fabric was called Winkle I told her it was called Ventile but in about the early 50s they had to develop the Ventile mixed with nylon because it used to rip when they were climbing so the actual fabric was called Winkle Okay, so there you go. Was, was that made by the same people? Made by the same people, yeah. It was originally made by um, probably Thomas Masons, but somebody before that. Just can't think who that was. My memory's not so great. Am I right in thinking that in 2003, when you picked up again on Ventile, Ventile wasn't really used much any longer? Oh, to be fair to you, I started Ventile about 79, 1980. Uh, so I tell everybody, I tell everybody I, I used it a lot longer, but basically I've used it, I've used it, uh, what is it, 50 years, is it? Less than 50 years, but it's a long time. So so the thing is with Ventile, I've had incredible uh, strokes of luck all my life. That's why I believe in this book. Okay? Good karma. What you give out comes back to you all the time, okay? And the amount of stuff that comes back to me is fantastic, okay? And I can't tell anybody more than, than that. Is a, There's a string of events which happen for me all the time. So the event was that an old gentleman who was 70 years of age came to see me 
1971. He was already 70. He was already over retirement age. And he was called Stan West. And he helped to invent Ventile in 1939 with the Shirley Institute. Okay? He came to me in 71. I wanted to buy canvas from him. Knew nothing about Ventile. And I kept in touch with him through the years because he was head of Ashton Brothers, okay? Who were one of the original makers of Ventile. But I wasn't interested in Ventile. I knew nothing about it. But as I started to collect the vintage, I kept picking up these jackets and they're all made of the same fabric. So he came to see me about 1979 when he was approaching nearer 80. And I showed him, I said, Stan, I've got all these jackets I've been collecting. And they're all, most of them were always army green. And um, I said, look, I've got four or five jackets. They're all the same fabric. Where the fuck do you get this fabric from? He says, you daft bugger. He says, that fabric is Ventile. That's the fabric that went up Everest. And you're joking. And he told me, just like that, in 79. And of course, here I am, you know, years later, taking all the knowledge. So I'm like a historian of Ventile. He passed it all on to me. So I know everything about Ventile. So, so if anybody wants to ask me anything about Ventile, just fucking fire away. Okay? <laughs> yeah. Now, I'd love to ask you, the cameraman jacket. Yeah. What was the actual inspiration for it? And well, when you were making well, it, what was the use you intended it for? Well, you've got to understand. The 1953 book, Descent of Everest, in the front of it, it has 12 climbers. So my idea was, you've got 12 climbers, all went up Everest as an expedition. I looked at every picture. I called the garment I wanted to design from the picture. And what they were wearing became the piece of clothing that I designed. And so the cameraman came from one of the climbers. And, and it was only a little picture of him, but it had a hood. Uh, and I thought, that's the cameraman. And, uh, and of course, my key things in those days were to mix all the British fabrics together. So it was, of course, it was a, it was a ventile top with a Harris tweed bottom, you know, because that particular moment, I just wanted to use British fabric and nothing else. Obviously, I've changed because I've had to move with the times, you know. But in, 90, in 2000, between 19... 1970 and and, uh, and and probably I'd say for 20 years I was pretty religious to British fabric to be honest I started to get real probably about in the year 2000 I had to start changing me my point of view a bit okay but I didn't for 2003 because that was where my love and heart was. And of course, I wanted a true British expedition, first to top of Everest with all British fabrics. And that's what I did. Even that was against the grain in 2003. Um, 
Well, there you go. It's remarkable how many of the designs from that collection have been making comebacks every season since then. Yeah, I've been doing the well. I've done the cameraman. I've done the the George Mallory or the Tenzing, as ever we call it. The George Lowe is the sweater with the stripe across. Um, I've got the little book. Have you ever seen the little book? I've only ever seen little pictures online of it. Are you joking? What a shame. Um, okay. Here's the little book. Okay. So this is the little book. This is from 2003. Oh, this is a the Scent of Cabourne. Yeah, was based on the original book, which is The Scent of Everest. And, uh, and here are... These are all the downs. Okay? Yep. So now we're talking about the camera. I've given you a clue. Okay, which one is the cameraman jacket? I'm going to show you. That's uh, Mr. Noyce would be. Spot on. So, so William Noyce, I go to his his lovely face. Here you go. Sorry, it's Wilfred Noyce. Sorry. So we called it Wilfred Noyce cameraman jacket. And this is the original cameraman in 2003. First proto ever made. Of course, it was made a little bit more sophisticated by the time it got to market. Okay, mm -hmm. you know I designed that. I took the, I took the U.S. Naval clip jacket, and I took the Filson jacket, and I stuck them both together. You know the potato man syndrome. <laughs> I thought, yeah. Okay, so. Now, the Everest Parker is very easy. Okay. So here's your Everest Parker. Now you can see the truth. That is not an Everest Parker. It's a fucking smock. And that's what got to the top of Everest. Okay. Yeah. There's nobody ever quit. Now, in the front of the book... What is Edmund Hillary wearing? That does look like a, a downfilled Parker. Yeah, that's the Everest Parker. And that's the one I went to Christchurch and photographed. And that's it. And that's the crossing of Antarctica 56 to 58. So, so when you see it, there's the Everest Parker. And that was the actual picture of the original one, which I reinterpreted through the computer. Look at it. Yeah. You know, that's the one that was on Antarctica in 56, and it may well have been, I believe it was Murray Ellis's, who owned Fairy Down. Or his parents owned Fairy Down. Hmm. And that's pure Venta. Although, it is pure Venta, because I know there's no nylon in that. So these chapters in, in uh, 1953... But nobody ever queried me. Nobody was that interested, you know, just trust what I said. <laughs> I'm a bit of a charlatan as well, after me. <laughs> You've got to put a bit of romance into it. 
So, um, so you know, I love that garment. Fucking fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. Now, your cameraman, as you know, there's your smoke. Um, that's sort of very similar to what got to the top of Everest first. Um, and then, this is your cold weather parker. I love this book garment. One of my favourite pieces. This is the cold weather parker. Indeed, I have one. Well, you love it, and I'm going to show you the original book of it. So, it, it was made by Cookson and Clegg for World War II. Okay. And... Crossing of Antarctica, there it is. Indeed. I made that jacket in Ventile with Harris Tweed inside. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that also gave me the Antarctic Parker because I made a longer version of it. Okay. And you see the smoke? Yep. That came from Crossing of Antarctica. So, so, uh, and look at the sweater. That came from crossing of Antarctica. Yep. If it wasn't the crossing of Antarctica, the really common denominator was that Hillary did both. First man north to south of Antarctica, 56 to 58. First man the top of Everest. So this is a combination of the two. But I love the title of the ascent of Everest so much. And we changed it to the ascent of Cabor. You know, I thought that was an important point. <laughs> but then in 2012, I think you went a little mad with Scott's last expedition. Yeah, well, I'll give you that. That's beautiful. That's even more beautiful from a point of view of the book. This is a beautiful book. This cost me 30,000 quid to do this, all told. So it comes in a box. Yep. Beautiful book. Scott's last expedition. And it's got the most beautiful, beautiful pages. It's a big book business. And um, and again, and that was when I was nice and fat. About 16 stone, in it, terrible glasses as well. Mm. Uh, this book's really nice. He's my favourite guy of all time. He's great. Lawrence Oates. I fucking love him. Uh, I'm not a gay guy, but I, I, I just think that would be such a romantic story. I'm going now and I'll be out for some time too. And and I love that sweater. And I thought he was fantastic. Just as I, I, I love um, Michael Hawthorne. He was the first British guy to um, to win Formula One 1958. So, you know, I've got this... I My heroes are not generally footballers, although... Um, Lev Yashin was the goalkeeper I always wanted to be. But other than Lev Yashin, I would say my heroes are famous explorations.
generation and my dad because he was he was a pioneer you know he was only 22 when he was in Burma I did a, did a book on my dad as well uh, this is the book of my dad this one's not well publicized because we only did a small quantity this is my dad it's got a hat it's got a cover cover of Burma and, uh, and this is my dad this is when he was about 22 in Burma. He looks great. There he is. And that gave me the Bombay bloomers and all the military stuff. So my dad used to garden in the 1950s when I was a little boy. He was a keen gardener. And do you know what he did? He used to have, used to have a burnet from his gun. He had two burnets. He'd stick the burnets in, in there with a piece of string to let his green beans grow over it. And you know, he used to wear Bombay bloomers in the garden. <laughs> this is about 1955. You know? So, I, I don't know. I had some sort of weird memories. You mentioned the word romance a little bit ago. And I'm thinking, when you're making these books and these collections where everything sort of fits together with a story... That, to me, adds an element of romance to it. It makes it that much more interesting. Absolutely. From the, well, it's from the heart, isn't it? it? When I say it's romance, it's because it's from the heart. I'm doing something that, that I'm obsessed with. And, that, and I love doing it, you know? It's, it's business, isn't it? So, and when I say romantic, I suppose I am romantic because these sort of people and stories are part of my life, aren't they? Um, male or female, it doesn't really matter. Uh, what, you know, if it's a woman, it would be different. But for a man, it's it's my feeling of admiration. For a woman, it might be beauty that I like. Uh, with a man, it's admiration and heroism, you know. So my heroes are not David Beckham, for God's sake. You know, my heroes are much more historical now, OK? Now, I mentioned that you went a bit mad with the Scots Last Expedition collection because that was really sort of 50 years before Antarctica Expedition and these guys were really rugged guys wearing oh, this furs. Was, this was the 100th anniversary, OK? This one was 50, OK? Yeah. So you did go pretty nuts with the sheepskin jackets and, uh, I mean... A lot of Absolutely. different stuff there. Well, the sheepskin was actually made up. I found a picture of, of the sheepskin jacket. What I did know then was that the, they did sleep in sheepskin, sheepskin uh, sleeping bags. And that sort of helped me to come up with the idea of making... A jacket from it and that's why I did that sheepskin because it was sort of based on the sleeping bag which is what they did have and that was where the that's where the inspiration came from you see so I'll show you the picture have you seen this little book before only scans of it online there you go yeah and what what's there sleeping bags because my mind is all over the place. It thinks in funny ways, okay? 
but it just so happens those funny ways work out quite well as being a fashion designer. Okay. Indeed. And then I'm not really so interested in fashion. I'm interested in doing fucking cool stuff. I like doing cool stuff. That's what I love doing. I really do great stuff. Now, am I right in thinking that you're sitting in the legendary windmill in Newcastle right now? No. I sold the windmill many years ago. Oh, damn it. <laughs> Could be 15 years. And a wonderful window. By the way, when you're looking in this place, you could be in a window, you know, because it looks that sort of old feel. Um, now I go back to the window, I'm quite sentimental. So sometimes I go and look at it. And I went to, I'll go and knock on the door and kind of come in and see my old place. And, and people think I'm a bit crazy, but they always let me come in. So, uh, so. I'm a bit sentimental, very sentimental. There's no wrong with that. Is there something over the microphone on your computer right now? I'm too far away, sorry. Is that That's better? much better. I know that you had a shop in the UK up until quite recently. Yeah. It was the sort of one shop in Europe. But then there's about two dozen shops in Asia with your name over the door. Yeah, there is, absolutely. I mean... It was a great shot to close that store. But I have to be honest with you, very honest with you, uh, that store was a flagship for Nigel Cable. That store inspired all the Japanese stores. My UK European business is about a quarter of the size of my Far East business. In the same way as Paul Smith's business is really, you know, it's probably the same sort of thing. It's huge in Japan, and so am I. So the UK business, it was always meant to be a flagship store. And the reality of it is, is that it traded for 10 years, but it never really, really made very much money. It always did okay. It used to wash its face. But when COVID came, uh, we couldn't negotiate uh, a rent reduction. There were really bad landlords in the end. We had to keep paying the same rent, the same rates, and we were closed. So we just couldn't afford to support it anymore. And so we had to finally close it six months ago uh, because the whole pattern of business changed in the last two and a half years, whether you like it or not. It's all about the internet now. Retail is really quite difficult for everybody, I think. So it's, a, it's, a, it's just part of the times, you know. And I never learned about computers. Uh, but I had to, when I got to find out about the Instagram, I thought you, you, you've got to start being able to use use some sort of computer so i know how to work my instagram well i'm still pretty much of a luddite on everything else <laughs> well that is the that is the basis basic isn't it so uh so, i think the key thing for me is great designer okay right. meet loads and loads of people 
as many people as possible, okay, and be really happy and doing what you want to do and fucking travel. And if you've got all of those, you're in a good state, you know? I think there's a lot of wisdom there. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've learned the hard way and I've always, I've always, I've had my own business all my life, you know? Well, I say all my life, I've really, you know, I went to fashion college, as I said, 67 it was actually, and uh, 69 I actually started the business as such. And by 1970, I left fashion college, didn't do my degree, straight into the business. And then 73 I showed in Paris, 71 I showed at the uh, designers show in New York when I was about 20, 21. And then I, I did all this, the Paris Sems all through the 70s. I had Paul Smith working with me. He introduced me to um, to people outside the Northeast because in the early, late 60s and beginning the 70s, I was actually totally local you know dealing with maybe as far as Middlesbrough Sunderland Newcastle but you know I had a, a beach bullion and some great stars and I, I could survive on that as a young kid I just had I just had a few hundred quid pocket money every week if you turn that in today's money probably had a grand a week in my pocket you know so it's a bit of a fairy tale do you have any thoughts on why you're so big in Japan? Um, because I'm a walking historian and a walking British person who loves what he does. You know, I've got extreme energy and enthusiasm. Anybody would have this success if you had my energy because I'm fucking like a fucking live wire. <laughs> No, it's obviously my, my whole demeanour is, and I, and I love what I do, and it's obvious that, that I love my job. I, you know, I'm a bit like a David Beckham on the football field. He obviously loves what he does, you know. And, um, you know, I think if you love what you do, people know it. They know the difference between fakes and real people, don't they? I guess the sort of, sheer authentic Britishness also plays into it a bit that's probably the biggest point I would say the fact that I was British doing authentic clothing and going to Japan four or five times a year helped uh, I mean Paul Smith was certainly the first quirky type person he wasn't authentic he was quirky and British but he was quirky he wasn't authentic he was quirky but he was he himself was authentic British, but his clothing was quirky. My clothing is authentic, uh, and it's about the mountains. It's about Everest. It's about Antarctica. You know, it's about Mike Hawthorne, the racing driver. You know, it's it's about all the historic things that, that we are famous for. I was able to portray that to the Japanese. Yeah. It strikes me when you're talking about Mike Hawthorne and stuff, you haven't done a collection based on British motor racing in the 50s. I have. You have? I do do one on mine. Uh, I'll tell you what happened, though. A bit of a tragedy. Of course, I, I love Mike Hawthorne. 
There's no doubt about not loving him. Okay. Oh, Mike. I'll show you, Mike. Okay. So here's Mike. Because I've got all my heroes around me. Okay. What does that fucking tell you, eh? He was the golden boy. What does it tell you? Look at that fucking jacket and his dicky boat. Right, yes. Anyway, he was dead in 59. Can you believe? I've actually driven past the bit of road where he went off in his uh, his Jaguar. Yeah, he hit a tree, didn't he? Mark 1 Jaguar. Mark 1 Jaguar. Yeah, he hit a tree. And um, that road, actually, he was racing. He was actually racing in the road. Um, and, and he gave up in 1958 because I think he wasn't that well and I think he got out on the height of his thing and then here he goes and kills himself in 59. Now Mike is very dear to me as well, right? Mainly because he looks fucking great. So the attraction with him to me was his clothing. Okay? Oh. Yeah, sorry. The attraction for me with him is his clothing. Yeah. Okay. He was a dapper dresser. Wasn't a big motor car Formula One. I was more interested in the way he looked and I was more interested in that era of clothing. Okay? So, here's the book. Did a full book on it, and the book's called The Book of My Motivation. Okay? Never even seen it. And who's on the front of that fucking book? There's Mike. Okay? Yep. He's D-type. Yep. Winning Le Mans in 1955. Okay? And and he's got the... He's got his co-driver with him and everything else. Okay? Yep. Now, here's Mike. So this book never got to, this is made by hand by me and students. And this was made in 2004. So this is exactly 20 years ago. I made this with fashion students. We made it by hand. And this was going to be the next limited edition after 2003. And the Japanese, because they'd done so well, uh, they were the main targets to launch it with and to finance this project. And they and and once I did all this work, showed them it, they said, Nige, the 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 Japanese have no interest in motor racing. And so this never got launched. But this is a handmade book. These are beautifully made. And we made that I made thirty thousand copies of this. I made two thousand copies of this. I made maybe a thousand on me dad. This one, none. Okay. Yep. So now you see the little mock up. And this is a clever little book because. So that's it. It's called The Book of My Motivation. That was me 20 years ago. Gosh. Okay. That was when I was about 53. And. This is his D-type, which you obviously love. 
Shall I tell you why I obviously love the D-Type or even more the C-Type? Because my, my grandfather was a mechanic with the Jaguar racing team. Well, then you know who this man is here, don't you? That looks like Lofty England. Absolutely spot on. I can't believe you know Lofty England. And I'll tell you why. Because for one moment, it slipped my, my memory. But Lofty is right there in the back. Look at him. Yep. Looking at Mike, who he obviously loved. Okay? And then, and then, um, and then the book. I've got the most amazing pictures. So look at these pictures. It was a period yeah. where men were very much men and you didn't want to make friends among the other drivers because they didn't tend to last very long. No, they didn't. But they all, a lot of them got killed. Of course, my favourite one, Peter Collins died. Oh, my favourite was um, my favourite was definitely Hawthorne. Next to him was Peter Collins. And of course, Mike and Peter Collins were best of buddies. And I found that romantic in the fact that two such good-looking, you know, running around the world, because I run around the world today. So when I saw the pictures of Mike and Peter Collins, you know, in later life, I was lucky enough when I was 60 to start running around the world, enjoying myself. And I, and I look at Peter Collins and I look at Mike Hawthorne and think, fucking hell, they were having it off. They were both young men and they were, they were going to they were going to south of France and everything. And I got that in later life. And I always used to see that as, as my life. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So that's the romanticism coming out again, isn't it? So this book, here he is. And what I did was I reproduced, I was inspired. So the book opens like this. So it just opens up the book. This book's quite clever. It's never got to market. Made by hand. And there's his fucking jacket, okay? Yeah. So this never got to market. That's a crying shame that didn't uh, didn't make it. Well, only you and I, people like freaks like you and I, <laughs> do I you know, this is not everybody's cup of tea. Yeah. Uh, but it came in a motor, uh, a motor kit. Yeah. And I thought it was a great idea. Yeah. And, uh, and I've thought about re-releasing it again. But nobody's really interested in Mike Hawthorne. It's the only people that are interested in people like us. Um, generally, people don't know much about Mike Hawthorne. Sterling Moss, yes. A friend of mine... Well, two friends of mine made a fantastic book about Mike Hawthorne. It's huge and thick. Uh, it's called uh, The Golden I've Boy, but it's big format, oh, oh, uh, massive. Yeah, that's one with all the pictures. In. Probably. Uh, Tony Bailey and Paul Skilleter. Yeah, I've got all the I can't seem to see you, but uh, I've got the Michael Hawthorne books so here, don't worry. There's, you know, there's sort of one big, beautiful one. Where he looks, so he always looked amazing in here. So Michael Hawthorne is one of my heroes. Okay. So looking yeah. back over the years, what, what do you think is your best work? What stands out today as stuff you're really proud of? I would say probably two thousand and three. 
Okay. I'd say 2003, probably. Do you feel it's all been downhill since then? (laughs) (laughs) It's it's been up and down. And um, obviously I've got got older, but I've... But I've given myself a new lease of life at 60. And I think I've probably taken 10 years off my appearance. And um, and so it's all been very positive. Uh, but, um, you know, it's got, it's got, the business has got quite tough again. And um, so I have to keep reinventing myself. But the more I have to reinvent myself, the harder it gets as you get older. <laughs> but I just keep reinventing myself. I'm like I'm like a fucking um, like a like a turtle. <laughs> you know? I feel like a turkey. I don't know why. I look like a turkey. Yeah. Yeah. This is me. This is my other icon, Sean Flynn. He's Errol Flynn's son. Did a whole book on this in 2000. And eighteen, and this is all about Sean Flynn and Tim Page. Okay, that's when you went full on into the army stuff again. Yeah, and that's called whatever happened to Sean Flynn disappeared in nineteen seventy. In nineteen seventy, him and Donna Stone, and Tim Page gave me all exclusive pictures. And I paid him about £6,000 when I got all these exclusive pictures, which are my own pictures, you know. Yeah. Tim had about 2000 He died just recently. So, so that's that's Starmer's death. And uh, people love this as well. Although, I would say it's had a huge success. It's different, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine I've got all these little books with my collections in? That these gonna to have to be worth a fortune when I'm dead and don't you think? It depends on finding someone who can appreciate it. Well that's that's the problem today, isn't it? They're absolutely Sounds almost gone again, Nigel. I, th- I think you're stacking too much stuff on your computer. <laughs> Yeah, Just get your sign yeah sure. Do this. Fantastic. Say hello to this nice gentleman. I did before. Oh, he said hello to there him. Hello. <laughs> Louise, Louise has been with me for 23 years. And the rest, about I'm 25 now. 25 years. I murdered him and still be out now. <laughs> she nearly murdered me yesterday. <laughs> this guy's in Norway. Oh, right. I knew he was, um, I, I knew he was, I thought he was in Sweden. Great. But Thank you. Say, yeah. Bye-bye. So those are the two, three, four, five. Uh, I'm just wondering if I did another one. I did five or six books, um, all based on my passion. They're all based on a on a hero. I mean, obviously, um, obviously, um, I'd say that um, I would say that you know Oates is probably more romantic to me than Scott I think oats look great you know so you know this is where when you're a kid you you sort of 
get infatuated, like people love David Beckham, love the way he looks and the way he plays. But I think for me, it's it's real true heroes for me. We've done amazing feats. True heroes, I guess, from a time when, when there were more heroes about. Nowadays, they're not really of the same caliber. There's nobody like that today. And so, obviously, my age plays a big part in this. If I was a young man, I'd know none of this. How do you see the sort of clothes industry and, and things going on now? Because it must be, I mean, the 50 years that have passed since you started out, a lot must have changed. Well, I was very fortunate that I kept reinventing myself. So, as you quite rightly said, I brought out the army gym. I kept close contact with a lot of young people who became good friends and who enabled me to travel and enjoy my life, you know. Um, I'm talking enjoying my life in a, in, a, in a very inspirational way, you know, because there's no point, there's no point traveling on my own. And it's nice to travel with young people who've got my sort of energy. Uh, I knew some of them are complete vintage fanatics like me. So so I was, I've been able to prolong my job, okay? I mean, I, I don't think many people will have had their own business from 1969, will they? Um, you'd have to be pretty, you'd have to be pretty committed, wouldn't you? And this is obviously what keeps me going, is having, having my work. I'd love to hear more about how you work, where you work, the people around you. Now, I've had this vision of you still, still in the windmill with your huge vintage archive, surrounded by clever people uh, doing your thing. But what, what, what is the reality of being Nigel K. Board designer? Uh, the reality is, is that it's a um, wonderful collection of books, a uh, wonderful collection of vintage garments. Um, having to work with CAD uh, computers to be able to take all the details and scan them in, combine all the details through my libraries into garments. That's a reality. Uh, traveling all the time, traveling to Paris, traveling to Milan, Travelling to Florence to buy the best fabrics, uh, going to all the best cities to collect vintage. So it's still a great, it's still wonderful, you know. And I'm going to Japan up until this bloody COVID thing. I was going four or five times a year. I started last year. I get to go to Japan twice last year, and now next at the middle of this month, I'm going to the Far East for for, for over four weeks. So, you know, it's great. It's great. It's great. When you go on those trips, is it just f for fun? Or are you working, meeting people, meeting fans? It's all of what you said in the last few words. Okay. <laughs> but, but, meeting the fans, meeting people, travelling to beautiful places, it's all where my inspiration comes from and where all my happiness comes from.
and where it keeps me young and it keeps me cool, you know? I mean, you, you know, it's all part of one big mixing pot for me and it all keep and I just keep going like this till I drop dead. Okay? Simple. We've established that there are no more heroes, but do you have any sort of great collection underway now, anything that's bubbling up that you'd like to do? Um, yeah, I've got a few things. I've always got things on the table, um, you know. I mean, but, but I mean, obviously, um, a lot of my business is done by collabs these days. So uh, I'd love to do a collaboration with Patagonia. Not that I've got an opening with Patagonia at present, but I keep doing collaborations with different people. So probably half of my business is collaborating with people who doing interesting things, which I can't do. So, you know, I've done Fred Perry. Uh, I've done Peak Performance. I've done Hagloffs. You know, I've done Vans, I've done Converse, you know, I mean, I, I get to do all the things that I want to do, but I'm doing them through collabs, okay? And I've done Filson, you know, I've done all, I've done virtually every collab I want to do. I suppose the only two that I really would like to do are Patagonia and Arterex, okay? Mm. Otherwise, I'm... Well, do whatever I want to do. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because they are two very distinctive brands in their own fields. One in the sort of trying to be eco, and the other in the super high tech. Exactly, exactly. And and the the skill is me finding a hook. Now I've already spoke to Arterex. I was very lucky because uh, because I've got a good Instagram and everybody seems to follow me in the fashion business. Arterex. Uh, a girl that worked at Arterex 10 years actually approached me for a job and she told me she'd work for Arterex. I said, you know, I'd love to work for Arterex. She gave me the name of the guy who was head of design and I thought I'd just contact him. And uh, we got on really, really well. And he was beautiful to me, he was lovely. But he said to me, Nigel, it takes three years to, to do anything at uh, Arterex. Wow. Um, and 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 it's a long process, but um, I said, "Oh, okay." Um, so this is this would be a real one, a real feat to get that. And Patagonia is quite similar. I met the guy who was head of Patagonia for eight years, who ended up being um, head of Levi Vintage after Patagonia. Came be friends good friends with him, and he told me how to go to Patagonia. He said, the guy who owns Patagonia loves nice letters and you're putting everything in writing properly. And I've never I've never done it because I don't have a hook and I don't really have anything to say other than I, I would love to work with him. But uh, I don't have a... I need a hook. So one day the hook comes and I'll contact I'll, him. I'll, I'll tell you what your hook is. Go on. When you were doing uh, a lot of Harris Tweed years back, you started waxing yes. the Harris Tweed. That is what Patagonia needs. Instead of all this polyester fleece crap that they're pumping out, yeah. that would be well, the thing. Cool. Uh, the good thing about the oilcloth 
Harris Tweed. I think I was the founder of that. I was pretty well the first person to do it. That was an idea with me and Hallie Stevens. We did that together about 12 years ago. That We did that in 2012. I think that was pretty well my, my invention. There's a lot of things that I've invented, which I don't really think about, but then when somebody reminds me, I think, well, I did the first oil cloth jackets. I've got one here, actually, from 2012. I want to show you it. So, this is a, yeah, it's, 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 it's to celebrate the 100th year of Harris Tweed. So, this is exactly 10 years old. There's your cameraman that you love. Yep. And this is all oiled. It's beeswax, this one. It's got beeswax with 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 um, oil cloth on the top, made by Hallie Stevens, you know. I don't wear the cameraman anymore. I've never worn one for years. And I don't wear my Mallory either, because I feel a bit old-fashioned in them. Okay? Um, That's it. Ish. That is very sad to hear, Nigel, because uh, that your your look in the Mallory was such a strong look. Very much so, very much so. But you know, I'm 74 now, so I want to look cool. I do. <laughs> you want to be down with the kids. This is your cold weather Parker. This is a special one. It's got a full full alpaca zip out lining. Good Lord. Yeah, it's beautiful. I normally make that with the Harris Tweed inside. I've got an orange one, all orange, but I've loaned it to the. Uh, there's a there's a there's a workwear exhibition in Rotterdam, and I've loaned them some of my key pieces. Yeah, and have been for some years. I'm more interested in the workwear. Uh, I'm really interested in my libo because I wear it all the time, and I think maybe people can credit me with a workwear. Um, following i mean i think my hat and my hara shoes and the bib and brace is really my look isn't it uh, and i love all the baseball stuff uh, and shirts are sort of a bit boring for me um and i'm also an outerwear is my speciality as you know can i just bring up one point towards the end yes um, I noticed that um, that your daughter is also in the in the business of fashion. Yeah, she's uh, a monster. <laughs> she's uh, she's thirty uh, thirty four, and um, she's always been a great supporter of her dad. And uh, she she's been working for me, and then not working for me. And uh, but now she's. She's got the hunger to start her own business and she's in the process of doing that. And uh, she's selling K-Born Vintage with Stone Island Vintage. There are two main, because I think Stone Island and K-Born are probably two of the most desirable older brands. I think Stone Island much more than mine, but I think I'm a, I think I'm a good second to Stone Island, okay? There is a brisk trade in both of them, and and similar. I, w I was struck by um, by the catchy name your daughter had given her business. A reborn, so clever, wasn't it? Very clever. She came up with that, and I think that's probably her passport 
to do him well, I think, with that name. It is also very much of the time now, where we are encouraged to buy less. Yes, reborn. And the other thing, that the other one, she suggested that to me, um, and, and I also had Born Again. So I, I had, we talked about it, but we, we had Born Again and Reborn. And she loved Reborn. That was the one that she wanted. That was her idea. I had, I, uh, I, you know, I had Born Again. Um, so anyway, it's it's a great. I think Reborn's brilliant, and it suits her a lot. And she's a little she's a little bit of dynamite as well. That girl. So the concept is uh, buying, uh, or rather, reselling vintage secondhand uh, the, clothing. Selling Gabon and so and so on islands, and 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 she had her first big one in Newcastle and she did nearly fifteen thousand pounds in four days on Stone Island and Gayborn. So uh both of them are highly collectible. Obviously Stone Island get fetch bigger money than Gayborn. But anyway, I don't mind being second to anybody, you know. Um uh, you can't be the best at everything, can you? I'm certainly not the best ping pong player, but I'll give it <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you're supposed to lock up your vintage uh, storeroom, or otherwise she'll be selling that under your feet. Well, she did have a few pieces of vintage as well. Um, but people, when they come for Reborn, it seems like they want Cayborn and Stone Island. And Stone Island's really desirable. I think Cayborn is as well to the Cayborn customer. But I think that um, Stone Island carries a little bit more a bit more glamour. Maybe that's because Massimo's dead as well. But maybe a lot of people don't know he's dead, you know. I get the impression maybe they don't because all saying, of his all of his brands are sort of still going and they're yeah, still trying to push the, the thing. But All a long time ago. I'm very friends with, or quite good friends, with his son, Lorenzo Osti. He's 48. I met him on a train about two years ago. And he came and sat down with us. Can I sit with you? He said, my name's Lorenzo Osti. He said, you're not Massimo's son, are you? He said, yes, I am. And he just talked about how much he loved the K-Bone product, which I thought was lovely. I said, well, I love your dad. I said, I met your dad about five times. He didn't speak any English. Uh, we acknowledged each other, but I wasn't particularly well known in the early 80s. And I said, neither was he for that matter. So I said, we met. He was shy. And uh, and he was over the moon about that. Yeah, he's been dead a long time. I think he's been dead at least ten years. I think it's even more. But uh, I guess uh, Cayborn has also been a sort of at times a casuals terrace football brand, while Stone Island and CP Company were very much the casuals. Yeah, I think Cayborn hasn't been particularly a terrace brand. I think Stone Island's always been a terrace brand, hasn't it? I, th I think the cameraman jacket was a bit of a casual's favourite. Was that a terrorist brand, the cameraman Yeah, yeah, I think that was... Uh... Do you know, I didn't know that. I didn't know that, actually. You've, you've told me something. So, so, I mean, I don't really believe in the cameraman jacket. I know I'm proud of it, but I don't wear it and I don't wear the Mallory. The only thing I wear is the Everest Parker and I wear... 
the Antarctic Barker, but I'm not really wearing, I'd wear the George Lowe sweater with a stripe across. Um, uh, I'd probably wear the mechanic shirt if I got a big one. I'd want a 54, a nice big one. But, uh, you know, uh, it's, I'm doing so many projects. I would say that I've become a bit of a designer's designer and doing so many collabs um, that, uh, you know, I think, if you look at Eric Clapton, you know, Eric Clapton's still great, but he's, he's the musician's musicians, isn't he? You mentioned if you found a mechanic's shirt that was large enough. Now, that there's one question I've always wanted to ask you, yeah. because I've always found your sizing to be a bit all over the place. Oh, definitely. I, I totally... So I'd use a Mallory jacket size 50, but the Mallory waistcoat size 52. Yeah, absolutely. And then I'd see you wearing your own stuff. Yeah. Massively oversized. I... So I was wondering, <laughs> what size does Nigel actually use? Well, I'll tell you what size I wear. 54. Never never any smaller than 52. 54. So all of the Mallory's I've got would be 52 or 54. Never any smaller. Uh, and pants, I always wear 38. The biggest. Even though I'm a 32 waist now. Or maybe 34, actually. <laughs> uh, I wear you know. Uh, I mean, these are Nigel Cabon shorts. These are based on my dad, Bombay Bloomers. These are about 10 years old. Yeah. These are 38s. Yes. Because that made me wonder whether the sizing was sort of sizing according to measurements or sizing as to how the designer thought they should be worn. It was according to me. And and, and that meant looking like me and and, and being oversized. <laughs> It's simple. That was it. It was sort of based on how I wanted it to look. Uh, so they were big fit. And I believe the guy who at least used to be your sample model, uh, I forget his name, the jockey. Oh, Drew. Drew, that's right. Drew Holmes. Well, Drew always looked fantastic in stuff. I mean, Drew was a proper K-born guy. I met Drew in when he was about 20. 23 had a vintage store in Newcastle and he worked for me for about 12 years uh, he's just over 40 now can you believe he's just got married and uh, when he left he just he was burnt out really he just decided he needed to go and do something else um, which was a bit sad for me at the time but um, we're still great friends. I see quite a lot of them at present, actually. Had a couple of years where we didn't. Uh, but he looked great in K-Bon. He was a proper K-Bon guy. He was also very skinny, thin arms. He was like, you know, he'd be 12 stone and six foot two, okay? Yeah. I mean, he was, maybe he was less, 11 and a half, uh, but he didn't eat anything. He was like a drain pipe. Uh, and he looked great, the stuff, didn't he? I do remember, it must be 10, 12, maybe even more years ago, there was a lot of photography that was just so good. You can still find them online, but the setting, the lighting and the models and the, the garments, so evocative. There was a lot of the tweed stuff. Yeah, yeah, well, it's funny you say that. I mean, I, I, 
a lot of people don't remember it, you see. Um, I mean, obviously, I remember everything. Um, but, you know, you have to live in the times as well, don't you? And, and obviously, t t you know, I'm always reinventing myself. I'm not sitting back ever, okay? I'm always trying to reinvent myself. I'm always looking for ideas. Nothing changes for me. I'm doing what I'm doing today is what I was doing 12 years ago. It hasn't changed. In fact, I'm working harder, actually. Much harder. <laughs> okay. Is there anything we haven't mentioned that we should have mentioned? Anything you'd like to plug? Um, no, not really. I think we've talked really honestly. You've been great. You've listened to what I've said and you've given me a lot of freedom to talk openly and honestly. You've got a true, honest interview today out of me because you've just let me talk away. Um, no, I think I've said as much. Uh, just to say that uh, I'm still fighting strong and I don't have any intentions of retiring. I, I, I just want to continue living the way I do, travelling as much as possible and going to Japan and the Far East, just going to LA where I love, New York. Uh, I'm just about, I've got about four new collabs on the table. <laughs> of course you have. <laughs> It gives me the money to travel. You know, you spend a fortune when you travel. Yeah. You want to stay in nice hotels and buy vintage. I need to earn money. So the collabs sort of fund, fund it. And, of course, the collabs give me uh, a passport to do things that I can't really do myself. Mm -hmm. so, you know, so I think that's, I think it's a means to an end, isn't it? Yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, you know? I mean, this was a means to an end. And look at the success with these. Made yeah. like 30,000 of these bloody things. Um, and I wear them every day. So, um, and they're a beautiful shoe, but they look like a shoe on a clown. And I think that's a good way to describe me. <laughs> it's very happy on the on the outside and not so happy inside okay yeah. don't <laughs> okay nigel this has been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for talking to me keep in touch with me yeah you're a really nice man i can tell and thank you you better get yourself one of these as well you probably don't need it but you maybe do as well uh, Oh, get yourself this as well. This might help you. Face yoga and good yeah. karma. This is good. And, and listen, I'm not a good reader. I really live by pictures. I'm totally inspired by pictures. And my favourite picture is that is is Edmund Hillary against the top of Everest, and Edmund Hillary against the and on, on crossing of Antarctica with the other with the whole four of them. So you know. Books are good, but I love pictures. Pictures speak a thousand words for me. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. And, uh, See ya. Bye-bye for now, Nigel. See ya. Wait a minute. See ya.
And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest, just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye-bye.